Okay, guys, have we had opportunity to just read through those three summaries? Yeah. So it's just really to give you um, a bit of an idea about the three plays that I'm going to be talking um, about today. So what I'm hoping to do is to kind of like shake things up where Shakespeare is considered. Because uh, one of the questions I always get asked is, you know, like, he wrote 400 years ago. Why do we still study him today? Um, and so that's something that I want to try and tackle um, in this session today. Um, and particularly, we are looking at three outsiders, okay? So we've got Aaron the Moor, we have um, Edmund the Bastard, and we've got Isabella the Woman, okay? Um, and what we're going to think about is what does it mean to be an outsider? In what ways is it possible for us to consider someone an outsider? And actually, how do we continue to define outsiders in society today. So what does Shakespeare say 400 years ago that actually perhaps still strikes with us today when we are reading his plays? So just have a little think about that first question for me. Um, what does it mean to be an outsider and in what ways is that possible? How do we define outsiders? What are some of the things that we think make someone an outsider? Any ideas? Jamila? Okay, yeah, so someone who we perceive as being other, yeah, someone who's different to the norm. Who sets the norm? Okay, so peer pressure or societal pressure that makes us believe that we have to conform to a certain way in order to not be excluded from the majority or to not be marginalised. Right, okay. So can we think of any examples from history where people have been marginalised because of certain things? Any ideas? Okay, yeah, so spinsters. Yeah, one group of people. Yeah, okay, good. Anything else? Anything else that's used to marginalise people or make them seem different? Race. Race, absolutely. Yeah, okay, good. So we've got gender expectations, we've got race. Anything else? It's okay if not? Okay, so we've got gender expectations and we've got race. And actually, if you think about the three characters that I've mentioned, Aaron the Moor is a black man in a Shakespeare play. Right, so race is something that was relevant 400 years ago and something we still talk about today. Isabella, the woman, gender, okay, and the expectations that are placed on her by Jamila, as you say, society, okay, by the norm that we set up. And then the last one that I'm going to throw in there is, is Edmund, um, who's the bastard, and actually we look at him in terms of status, right? So before we get looking at these characters, I'm very, very quickly just going to give you a little bit of history, right, about the theatre and how the theatre was developed. So about 50 to 100 years before Shakespeare started writing, there was the Reformation, which hopefully you guys have heard of, so where Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church and formed the Church of England. And we have the printed book, which is basically the Bible being printed in English for ordinary common folk to read. So it was no longer held by the clergy. It was accessible to everyone. 
Now, before these two events, plays in the theatre were always working towards a moral end. So we were always supposed to learn something from plays. And they were always performed in a church. Okay? Now, if we think about the globe, is that a church? It's a theatre, right? So after the Reformation to the Protestant church, Shakespeare was writing in quite an exciting time because there was more scope to write opinions. And what that actually led to was a developing sense of subjectivity. So what does this mean for us when we're thinking about outsiders? Well, we can divide Shakespeare's work under two time periods. So we've got the Elizabethan time period, where Elizabeth I was reigning, and then the Jacobean period, when James I was there. And both of these monarchs were really great patriots of the theatre, right? So they really celebrated Shakespeare and what he was doing. But actually, part of the reason why they celebrated Shakespeare in the theatre was because it allowed them to display their power as monarchs, okay? And you can see I've put this quote here, power is best shown visually. So we need to ask ourselves two questions then. What is theatre and how effective is it? And by how effective is it, what I mean is, can it change people? Or do they just kind of return to the status quo, to the norm, once the performance is over? If we think about this idea of power being best shown visually, then what we're thinking about is the dramatic aspect of theatre, right? So things like public hangings, for example, were an opportunity for these monarchs to show their power against people who were going against them, against these outsiders, these rebels, these others, okay? And that's what we wanna try and explore a little bit of today, about how Elizabethan theater in particular is as much about interaction and communication as it actually is about the spectacle of the drama, okay, and the dramatic. So for the purpose of today's session, I'm going to define the outsider in these ways, okay? So those who are part of a resented or subordinate group, those who are critically recognised as different from the era's preoccupation with the malcontent, and the malcontent, you've just got like a definition of that here, okay, is the cynical outsider who's familiar with the court but stands apart from it and who sees human ambition and desire for what they are. So the malcontent actually recognises and embraces their status as the outsider. Okay? I've put there that it's important to note that Shakespeare's plays document a shift in the criteria by which outsiderhood is established and in his early works membership of a marginalised group was sufficient but actually in the later plays, and the three plays that I've chosen are all his later works, they invoke a more complicated set of factors, including the subjective personality of the individual character. And what this basically mean, means in like layman's terms is that there's a move away from choice to being an outsider, so this idea of the malcontent, to actually being forced into this resented or subordinate group. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah? Have I lost you? Are you with me? Yes? Okay, Hesnane's nodding. I'm going to take Hesnane's nod as a, as a confident point to move on. All right, so 
We're going to look at three key outsiders. I've mentioned their names already. So Aaron Moore is from Titus Andronicus, which was written and first performed sometime between 1590 and 1593. We've got Isabella from Measure for Measure, which was first written and performed sometime between 1603 and 1604. Those of you who remember Macbeth might remember Macbeth is kind of around the same time, right? So 1603. And then you've got Edmund the Bastard from King Lear, which was written between 1603 and 1606. And I've just put this quote here. So society is most accurately viewed from its margins. And the three margins that we're looking at is race, gender, and status. And I'm kind of going to do these in reverse order, guys. So I'm going to start with King Lear, first of all. Okay, so this is the second uh, little section of text that you have on your handout. So... Let's start off with what the word bastard actually means. Um, it means other. Yeah, the literal translation of it in Shakespearean English is other. And he's portrayed to us as quite a malevolent and venomous character. And there's a very traditional line taken on Edmund's actions in the play and that it's spurred on by his ambition, okay? So he's just ambitious, that's what makes him a villain. And that's kind of interesting, insofar as it reflects the thirst for land and power, which was very much present in that era. But actually more interesting to look at is what Shakespeare does with Edmund's language. Okay? And that's what we're going to have a little look at in the extract that I've put for you on your handout. So we're thinking about the question... Does Edmund use the frame of a bastard? Does he use that status as an excuse for why he is an outsider? Okay? So, what I would like you to do, um, I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to kind of have a little read through that speech. And I want you to think about these questions here. Okay? So, is he using the frame of a bastard as an excuse? Does he assume it as a means to gain power and then excuse his means of gaining that power because of the status that that title affords him? Okay? So have a little read through that speech. You can see that I've highlighted some words in there for you. Think about what is actually happening with the language in that speech. What do you notice about the words that I've highlighted and why have I colour-coded them in that way? All right, so I'll give you just maybe four minutes to do that. Anything that we think they have in common? That's okay, that's okay. Yes. Absolutely, yeah, because if we're taking it to mean other and actually in society we reject the other, then actually to be base is to be other, yes? And actually the word bastard is very often associated with this idea of distortion, yeah? So when we talk about other, we talk about things not fitting into a particular ideal, they are distorted. 
But what's really interesting is that that is exactly what Edmund is doing with his language here. He's distorting the language because he plays on words. So base, baseness, bastardy. He's playing with that idea. Yeah, well, if I'm a bastard, then I'm base, so it doesn't really matter what I do. So is he using it as an excuse? Does he use that status of bastard, that status as an outsider, as an excuse for, for the actions that he is then about to complete? Yeah, absolutely. Khadija, you're nodding. I can see. <laughs> okay, good. So he's using that as an excuse, right? But then he takes it one step further, because if you look a little bit later on, you'll see that I've also highlighted the word legitimate. Okay? In this part of the speech here, what Edmund's doing is he's questioning his position as a bastard, right? So he says, in the lusty stealth of nature, take more composition and fierce quality. So he sees himself as a man who was born out of passion and therefore as a stronger man. And so he's celebrating his baseness. He's celebrating the fact that actually he isn't confined to behave in a particular way. And I use that word deliberately because actually then if you look at what he does with the idea of legitimate, so Edgar is his brother who is legitimate, who was born in wedlock, but who he says was born within a dull, stale, tired bed. Go to the creating a whole tribe of fops. Go tween, sleep, and wake. So he actually says, well, you weren't born out of passion. You weren't born out of fire. So you're actually a weaker man than I am, even though you are legitimate. And he reduces Edgar to the same position that his bastard status, in the very stereotypical view, reduces him to. So here, I would argue that actually what Shakespeare's doing is playing on words. When he says, as to the legitimate, fine word legitimate, I don't think he means fine as in good, but I think he means confined. So as the legitimate son, you are confined to behaving a certain way, which because of my status, I am not. So this is a weird term, I'm going to put it you know how he says base, baseness, bastardy, like, he's, like, he's all different, whilst legitimate is the same word, he's not saying legitimate, legitimate, because it'd be like how, with the base, baseness, it shows how, like, if you're different, you're, like, seen as an outcast, and with the fact that legitimate is the same, it's like how they, it's the same for two. Mm. No, absolutely, because actually, his position as a bastard allows him to change his status in society, right? He is not confined to the behaviour of a legitimate son because he is other. And so what he's doing is he's embracing that otherness and he's celebrating it because he doesn't have to behave in a particular way. But he takes that one step further as well because then what he then does is my legitimate. So he says because he doesn't have to be constant, actually he is able to overshadow Edgar, the legitimate son. And so in that sense, we might say that Shakespeare is celebrating the status of being a bastard. Yeah, that actually being an outsider is 
is something positive, it's something good, and something that we should welcome, which is an interesting way of looking at outsiders. Yeah? Let's take a look at another example. So we'll keep going. We're going we're gonna to take a look at Aaron the Moor now. And this quote always strikes me as, as really important. This is my favourite Shakespeare play, guys. So if someone wants to write about it for their coursework, I'd be happy to receive it. Um, so Aaron is referred to as the chief architect and plotter of these woes. So he's one of the most prominent outsiders. Interesting to compare him to Othello who is perhaps seen as a bit of an insider at the start of the play. But because of his status as a prominent outsider, he is seen as being symbolic of all of the evil in the play. Okay? Um, he rises to see the state collapse, he laughs to see the Roman family dismembered, and he prompts the acts of rape and mutilation that strike at the heart of Titus's family, the state, and the speech itself. Okay? And it talks here about the fact that he is an alien creature uh, whose feelings and thought for processes are in every sense the inversion of the fair ones around him. And he brazenly flaunts his barbarism that the other characters in the play mask. Because actually, you could argue that Titus's actions, who is a Roman general, he's white, he has all of those kind of fair respected, preferred qualities, his actions are no worse than Aaron's. So it's very interesting to see them both side by side. And I'm going to start off with this very small quote to begin with. So Aaron says, Why there's the privilege your beauty bears, fire treacherous hue, that will betray with blushing the close enacts and counsels of thy heart. So I want you to think here about how this presentation of blackness signifies a shift from the negative lack of something fair into the positive virtue of consistency. Okay? So just take a minute, again, have a couple of minutes, work with the people around you, what is he saying about the act of blushing? Why is that problematic and why would he prefer his dark skin as better than that? Okay, so just take a couple of minutes, have a little read, have a think. Perhaps think about his position as an outsider as well. Why might his face need to hide certain things from the world? Any ideas? Malia? So like no harsh blushing is associated with like emotions. It's like whether you're um, um, nervous or like you're going through hard shit in your face, but you just turn red because you can you can feel that. So it's kind of show that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we have this very sort of Western attitude that to be fair, fair skinned is a real positive thing, right? Because you would argue that if you're fair-skinned, you're able to show that you've been sort of touched by your conscience. Yeah? You, your face will reflect guilt or reflect embarrassment or shame. But actually, Aaron suggests 
that there's beauty in the consistency of his black skin because it doesn't betray him. And actually in a world where he's considered to be an outsider, that's a virtue, that's something that he needs. And again, in the second part of the speech that I've given you, you can see that same word being used, base, the same word that we've seen Edmund using in King Lear. And he says, I that with base prayers should repent the evils I have done. And that line actually kind of strikes for me because it suggests that his skin doesn't define him as weak in the same sort of attitude that Edmund's status as a bastard doesn't define him as weak. And for a mere moment in the play, and it is a moment in the play, you might therefore argue that actually there is a beauty, there is a certain aristocracy to his blackness, um, which perhaps transforms the stigma of slavery that we often associate with race. So again, Shakespeare kind of celebrating this form of other as something that actually we can find beauty in. Um, I've sort of talked about that, so I'm gonna skip through that. So the last one that I'm gonna talk about is measure for measure. And actually I changed my mind. <laughs> I was gonna to talk to you guys about Shylock um, from the Merchant of Venice, who um, is a Jew and was therefore seen as very other. Um, but actually, certain conversations that I know have been had with both classes, actually, um, and certain kind of media events made me change my mind. Um, and so I thought, actually, what would be nice to do is to explore the position of women and the idea of women being marginalised. So I decided that we were going to look at Isabella in Measure for Measure. Um, can you tell me if you guys have heard of the hashtag MeToo movement? Yes? What is it? Someone tell me. So, yeah, I think Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, it was, that whole, um, it was that whole kind of debacle that sort of set this off. But actually, it's grown to be something more than that, right? So now we've got things about um, the sort of gender pay gap, um, the sort of lack of equality um, that people are kind of saying is very systemic within society, within the UK, okay? And the recent story of... Um, Sarah Everard, who I'm sure you guys have all sort of heard of in the news, got me, got me starting to think about, about Shakespeare and the, the sort of hashtag Me Too movement. Um, and it reminded me of Measure for Measure, which I studied in my A-levels in English. Um, and one of the most interesting things about Measure for Measure is that it's referred to as a problem play. So when you categorise Shakespeare's plays, you obviously place them into tragedy, comedy, history. And Measure for Measure has always been stuck in a comedy because it ends with a marriage. 
but very recently people have started to talk about the fact that well yeah there is a happy ending but actually the play does deal with scenes of quite dramatic and shocking violence and one of the scenes is the one that we're going to look at today, which is Act 2, Scene 4. So if you flip your sheets over, guys, um, you'll see that you have a sort of cut-down version of this scene. And just to kind of put the scene into sort of perspective for you, you've got Angelo, who is the Deputy Duke of Vienna, who so far has kind of presented himself as a really pious quite holy man who adheres to the law and the principles of the law. But in this scene, Shakespeare actually exposes him by asking the audience to consider what happens when lust corrupts power. And in this scene, he presents Isabella, who has come to see him to plead for the life of her brother, who Angelo has sentenced to death for having sex outside of wedlock. And Angelo proposes a theoretical hypothesis in the case of which would you rather? And you can see the little quote that I'm going to start with here on the board, okay, but it is on the sheet for you as well. So he says, which had you rather that the most just law now took your brother's life or to redeem him Give up your body to such sweet uncleanliness as she that he hath stained. What choice does he give her? And I use the word choice very loosely here. What, what is he asking her to do in order to save her brother? Yeah. So he's saying, all right. Hypothetically speaking, if I told you that you could save your brother by sleeping with another man, would you do it? And Isabella's response is really interesting. So she says, Sir, believe this. I'd rather give my body than my soul. And Angelo replies, I talk not of your soul. I would argue that actually Isabella totally misses his meaning. There's a real lack of naivety surrounding her character, like the penny hasn't dropped that that's actually what he is asking of her. And again, Shakespeare's language here is really interesting because Angelo, who I think is quite kind of consumed by shame, expresses himself in quite a convoluted way. So you could argue that actually Isabella isn't meant to get what he's saying. If you take a little look at the next section, so he says, admit no other way to save his life as I subscribe not that, nor any other but in the loss of question that you, his sister, finding yourself desired of such a person whose credit with the judge or own great place could fetch your brother from the manacles of the all-building law and that there were no earthly mean to save him, but that either you must lay down the treasures of your body to this supposed, or else let him suffer, what would you do? There's a real level of vagueness. He's very clear here not to say, I want your body, but the intention is there. 
and we can see that. And it's at that point that actually Isabella realises what he means. Now, whether it is naivety, whether it's the fact that she's kind of so caught up with this idea of saving her brother that prevents her from reading this uh, earlier on, her response is quite interesting. So, the impression of keen whipside wear as rubies and strip myself to death as to a bed that longing hath been sick for, ere I'd yield my body up to shame. What does she say? In reply to his question, what does she say? So she refuses, yeah? She says, no, I'm not going to give up my body to shame because actually that is going to corrupt me. It's going to corrupt my soul. And there's this idea of double standards here because Angelo then replies to her and says, well, I've given you this choice to save your brother after you've condemned me for condemning him to death, but your actions have done exactly the same thing. And Isabella calls him out on this, quite unusually for a woman in this era. She says, my brother did love Juliet, and yet you tell me that he shall die for it. Angelo's excuse for this is, oh, I love you. So it's okay that I'm asking you this because actually my feelings come from a, a real and true place. And again, he's trying to manipulate language here to maneuver Isabella into a particular situation for him. And again, Isabella recognises this, and what she does is she attempts to regain power. And she has here this idea of sort of taking his ammunition to try and fight back. So she says, I will proclaim thee, Angelo. So I will tell people about what you've done. And Angelo's reply is for me, I remember reading this at A-level and I remember this line and I remember it sticking out for me because his reply is so simplistic and actually, you know, we often think of Shakespeare as a really great poet but there is a greatness in the level of simplicity he uses in Angelo's reply because all he says is, who will believe thee, Isabella? And in doing that, what he's showing is that actually Isabella is completely marginalised by the system because she is other, because she is an outsider. So no one is going to believe what she says. And there's a couple of ways that we can read this, right? So we could say, for example, I'm just checking to make sure if I need to change my slide here. We could say, for example, well, actually, there's a difference between objectifying women and not. So if women are objectified in this play, then what we've got is Angelo referring to trying to steal Isabella, right? To rape literally meant to steal in this era, okay? And so he's trying to steal her away from her male guardian. And in doing so, he's demonstrating his power and his authority as a male. So we could argue, well, actually, well, is Shakespeare then showing that there is a difference between marriage and rape? Marriage is the taking of one's own property, whereas rape 
is the taking of something that is not yours. And in a society where there wasn't really a distinction between the two, this is a bold move on Shakespeare's part, right? So I suppose what, we, what I would start to consider, or what I want you to start to consider, is how does that idea speak of society today, or speak to society today? So if we think about the Sarah Everard case, or if we think about the treatment of the male policeman to the women who went to her vigil, and again, I'm hoping you've kind of seen some of that on the news, are women still marginalised? Are we still oppressed by the state, as Shakespeare seems to suggest we are here? What do you think? Is what Shakespeare's saying 400 years ago still a question that we're asking ourselves today? Is it still a relevant discussion to have now? <laughs> Khadija, you look like I've just asked you like when the world's going to end. <laughs> what do we think? Is there still this idea of male power, of patriarchy? Maybe that is Absolutely, yeah. Because what the Sarah Everard case has done is, is they've started, and guys, I think you were looking at some of the headlines, weren't you, in your lesson? Yeah. So talk to me about some of those things that you were discussing then. And that idea of, as you say, like how women can handle it as opposed to sort of like driving to the heart of the issue itself is something that's kind of relevant in Isabella's case. Because what Isabella actually does in the play is she goes to the Duke. So remember, Angelo's the deputy Duke, right? So she goes to see the Duke of Vienna. And at the end of the play, the Duke asks Isabella to marry him. Now, Isabella starts the play wanting to be a nun, right? So marriage, not really in her periphery vision. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't, want, she doesn't want to be married. And so some people have argued, well, actually, we can see Isabella as an example of personal power. And maybe that explains why she ends up with the Duke at the end. Because there's very little women, uh, sorry, there's very little space for women to be under men in measure for measure, all right, for, for them to be sort of submissive. And there's three kind of examples of that. So Angelo, the deputy duke, the one who wants Isabella to sleep with him, he's, he's forced to marry his sin. So he previously left a woman called Mariana at the altar. Um, there's a guy in it called Lucio who's forced by the Duke to marry his whore. And so really, if we're seeing Isabella as a symbol of personal power, then is that Shakespeare's solution for transgression? That actually, even though you're other and you're outside of the norm or you're outside of the law, is there a way to force you into conforming? Is that his solution? That actually we'll just we'll just write these wrongs and that's it, it goes away. 
But then if we accept that theory, there's another problem with this play because when Isabella is engaged to the Duke, she loses her ability to speak freely. In fact, she never actually agrees to marry the Duke. Her brother, Claudio, accepts, accepts him for her. And so she's silent at the end of the play. So again, another question that we perhaps need to ask ourselves is, is her marriage to the Duke her punishment for speaking too freely? So whereas in the other two plays, we see sort of these glimpses, these moments of Shakespeare almost seeming to celebrate outsider status or celebrate otherness, for Isabella, who's often referred to as quite a problematic and a distasteful character because she's so freely spoken. That seems to be the reverse. And so we might start to question, well, actually, out of these three sort of subgroups, gender, status, race, is gender still the biggest issue? And is that true of, it, of those kind of three subcategories today? Um... And so we've explored three examples of plays today. I've actually ended quite early, um, but I think that's okay. Um, and as I kind of said at the beginning, because they're the later plays, they're invoking um, a more complicated set of factors, including the subjective personality of the individual characters, so whether or not they embrace their outsiderness. And I've put there that actually the ideological realignment of these later plays opened up a psychological area where sympathy for individual Moors like Aaron or Jews felt like I couldn't not mention The Merchant of Venice being as it was originally a part of this might actually flourish and might be seen as positive things despite the prior status of their groups. And I would argue, and this is just my opinion, that actually much of Shakespeare's drama derives its impetus from this contradiction. But whether or not you agree with me is just a little something for you to go away and decide. And if you do want to do a little bit more reading around this, or in fact a little bit more listening, I'm a big fan of podcasts these days, don't really have time to wander around with a book in my hand, but I can plug in a set of earphones. Um, these are some of the things that I would recommend you look at just to develop those views, particularly you guys who are going on to study Othello next year. be a great starting point for you. And that's it. If there are any questions, let me know. But otherwise, thank you so much for coming, guys. Thank you. All right, no worries. Thank you. <laughs>